Grab a Bible, head over to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Uh, Last week we were seeing Christ and his authority uh, over the natural world as this storm comes upon them. And Christ is uh, able to just calm the storm, to control it. This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus and his authority again, but this time in a little weirder way. We're seeing his authority over the the supernatural world, over these evil, rebellious spiritual beings that we're going to see. Uh, and, and so we're, we'll get into that. We're going to read this passage, though, in, in three parts as we go through it, just to keep the passage fresh in our mind as we get to each section of it. So uh, if you found your way over there to Luke chapter 8, let's uh, begin reading in verse 26. When they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land... There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He had... He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, stories like we read today are hard for our modern minds to make sense of. Help us to believe what we do not often see. Enlighten our minds to learn truth from your word this morning. May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. So again, after Jesus calms this raging storm, they, they sail to this region where the people are called the Gerasenes. There's a, a town and a region. It's all kind of mixed up together. Uh, that's where they go. And now before we, we really get into this, this passage, I do want to remind you of something here. This is not a parable that Jesus is telling. This is a real recording of a real story. It's absolutely bizarre. Let us absolutely admit that to us. It seems so strange to us. But it is indeed a real story. See, on some level, I think we've got to really feel for his disciples. Sometimes it's hard to get into their shoes, but uh, to really think about the way they saw these things. They've nearly died in this storm. And then they manage to watch Jesus just calm the storm. And they're amazed by it, right? That he can control the weather. And then the next day they come to this place and they're so exhausted. And they get out on shore, finally someplace that they're feeling safe. And what do they come to? They come to this absolute craziness before them that greets them at the shore. There is a man who is naked. He's literally possessed by a demon at this point. And I know, again, I know that sounds weird to us, but, but remember this, that Jesus 
clearly taught that there are evil spiritual beings who seek to do harm to human beings. Uh, and, and Jesus teaches that, right? You, you may have never ever in your life knowingly encountered one. Like I have never in my entire life knowingly encountered a demon. But Jesus does not lie. And Jesus knows more about the spiritual realm than every single one of us combined. Even if you expand that to the 7 billion people on the planet. And, and, and so he, he wants his disciples here, including you, because it's recorded in the scriptures here, to know that there are demons and they mean to do us harm. Now we've got to keep this in some perspective. C.S. Lewis gave this helpful advice when, when thinking about demons in, in, in this regard. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. The one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both heirs. And so let us not minimize them nor exaggerate them to the point that we want to blame demons for everything that's ever gone wrong in our life. Every sin we've ever struggled with, things of that nature. In other words... We need to come to a point where just like Jesus, we believe that demons do in fact exist and mean to do us harm. And at the same time, and this might sound weird, but just like demons, that we believe that Jesus exists and is powerful and mighty over them. See, demons were created for God's glory. They're, they're fallen angels. They've rebelled against God and, and they seek to torment men and women created in the image of God. Uh, they're quite different than the way we, we see other spiritual beings working. Uh, you know, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in fact, right? Who, who, who sets men and women free, always strengthening God's people, always building them up and, and giving them self-control. The opposite is uh, with, with demons are the demons strive to weaken a man or woman to leave them without any self-control. To take them over in that regard. Plain and simple, demons always seek to oppose the glory of God. So you're starting to get the idea here. I just want to make sure we have a good understanding of that. There, there is this invisible cosmic battle that is going on for the heart and the soul of every individual. And this encounter that we're seeing with Christ here, with this demon, this, this encounter in the, in the tombs gives us this unfiltered image of what happens when we see Satan, when we see demons actually having success in the life of a man. Um, we see it, right? The man's running around naked. He's lost all sense of shame that should be normal at that point. The man's living in a cemetery. Um, you know, and this is this, this century at this point in history, right? We're talking holes in the ground where there are bodies decomposing. This is where he is found to, to make his home. He's alone. He's alienated from family. He's been ostracized from society. He is completely isolated at this point. We know that the man is a danger to others, right? Luke doesn't record too much of it here, but Matthew, in Matthew 28, or 828, we're told that, he, that this man is so fierce that nobody could pass this way. Nobody would come near him. At times, people have put chains on him, trying to bind him. He had the strength to rip them off, and he would run off into the desert. This man, made in the image of God, has been so dehumanized at this point, as, as he's fallen under this complete dominion of these dominions, both in body and soul. And it's true. We, we, we don't see demon possession like this today. 
At least not in the United States where we live, we don't see that. But, but don't let that fool you, right? Don't let it fool you to think that maybe, maybe this isn't happening at all. Maybe there are no demons. Maybe there is no influence. Satan, even today, has power over many hearts and souls who are encouraging isolation, encouraging self-destructive lifestyles, encouraging, uh, ultimately, that people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure that you've never met anyone that has it as bad as this guy we're looking at. And so it's hard to kind of get our mind around what this looks like. But, but I bet you have seen people that are so bound by addictions in their lives. By sinful enslavements, isolated from others, from, isolated from God, unashamed of their sin even, right? Maybe we've not just seen people like this. Maybe we've been people like this in the sense that we need Christ to set us free. And, and so then here we find Jesus, right, with his disciples. I, I, I wonder how many times these disciples show up somewhere with Christ and they just do that weird where you look at each other thing like, are you seeing the crazy stuff I'm seeing? And here again is another moment. They're behind Jesus as this has all happened. This demon-possessed man falls down and he, and he shouts, right? Here they are on the, on the shore and he's shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Well, the disciples, after the storm, were wondering, you know, who is Jesus? That's the pondering question they have. These demons know exactly who Jesus is. And they're terrified of that. They're kind of like those hyenas in the Lion King. You know, they're, they're fierce, they're intimidating, they're bad news. And until they find them in the presence of, of the king, and, and suddenly they're, they're, they're begging and groveling, right? They're, they're begging in that sense. Here, here he, he's showing that ultimately the, the authority belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus asks him, what, what, what's your name? And the demon-possessed man gives that that answer, legion, right? Luke informs us that legion is a, it is a name, yes, but it also is explaining the reality that it's not just one demon that's possessed him. He's been possessed by multiple demons, many of them. See, uh, in the Roman army, a legion is 6,000 soldiers. We don't know. Maybe the demon's exaggerating at this point. We, we know that uh, uh, according to Mark, there are 2,000 pigs that are, are, are later part of this, Right? So at the very minimum, we're talking about 2,000 demons that have possessed this man. And at this point, you know, the, the demons know they're in trouble. And so they're begging Jesus, don't, don't throw us into the abyss. Don't, don't send us there. Uh, the abyss then is this, this idea. It, it's spoken about in uh, Romans 10, 7 speaks of it just generally as the place of the dead, right? Uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 9 and, and 20, we, we see a little more specifics. It's this idea of this bottomless pit uh, where, 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 where spiritual beings can be placed for uh, like a prison, basically. They're saying, don't, don't send us there. And in other words, not now. They, they know that's their ultimate doom. And then this next bit is incredibly interesting. In, in fact, some people really struggle with the way that Jesus handles the pigs here. Uh, in fact, the, the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, an atheist man, he, he once wrote this book called Why I Am Not a Christian. You can probably guess what the book's about. Um, it's about why he's not a Christian. And, and one of the reasons he, he gives in that is this instance of the pigs. He, he's disturbed by it. We're go, we'll get to what his objection is. But first, I, I do want you to notice here one thing. That the demons ask permission, right? It's weird. 
They're, they're asking permission because who holds the power here? Jesus does. Without his permission, they can't do what they're going to do. And Jesus permits the demons then, right, to, to enter these pigs. And, and as thousands of demons exit this man, we have no idea if you can see this or not or what it looks like. But as they exit this man and they enter into these thousands of pigs on the hillside nearby who just immediately rush down this, uh, uh, this incline into the water and all the pigs drown. You see, Russell, Bertrand Russell really struggled with this idea because he believed that this event showed that Jesus was in fact unwise. That it showed that Jesus was cruel to the animals. That's his objection. Because he wants to know, you know, he's thinking, it seems like a simple solution. Why didn't Jesus just banish the demons to be gone? No pigs had to die this day. Why not just leave it at that? Leave the man alone and be gone. I think it's fair. We, we might also wonder, why, why does he do that? Why, why kill these pigs? It turns out to be a terrible PR move. We'll see later. Uh, one reason is that what Jesus does here uh, with the pigs, the pigs make what Jesus does here immediately remarkable. And it makes it an absolutely unforgettable story. Nobody who was there, nobody who heard it, no one who was part of this ever is going to forget this story. There's no question as to what they observed at this point. You know, it, it makes visible this massive oppression that this man was under and, and just how much Jesus has delivered him from as these thousands of invisible demons suddenly become visible as they see them show up into these pigs. Secondly, Jesus permits this because he values the man made in God's image more than he values animals. Um, this doesn't mean we should mistreat animals. We certainly should not do so. We, we have a calling to treat them well. But uh, regardless of what PETA has proclaimed, regardless of what Sarah McLaughlin music you've seen playing over commercials at times, animals are not people too. It's not a knock against animals. But they are not people too. They do not have souls. They are not made in the image of God like humanity is. The third thing we see here is that the, the pig's drowning further teaches his disciples and others just how evil demons are. That they would go and, and immediately do that to destroy the animals they were in. That's precisely what they hoped to do with the man. And, and finally, Jesus permits the demons to enter the pigs because he does everything according to God's will and for the glory of God alone. And sometimes things are risen up in certain ways to glorify God. And in Romans 9.17, we, we learn that, that God raised Pharaoh back in Egypt, raised him up to power for a specific purpose. And that purpose was that he could show the superior power of the Lord God Almighty when he brings him down. And, and then God adds there, he says, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That was his purpose. These pigs live and died for the glory of God. And unfortunately, Bertrand Russell was not given eyes that we know of at any point to see God's goodness in this event. So the demons are gone, right? But there's more to this story. So let's, uh, let's go back to our Bibles and we're going to pick up in, in verse 34 there and see what the response here is. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it to the city and to the country. And then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. 
and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people, the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat, and he returned. Now, since we're never really given any other name to call him by, I'm just going to continue to refer to the man as, as Legion, right? Uh, and I want you to notice here, first of all, the, the change that actually happens in the life of Legion. He is sitting at the feet of Jesus, whereas he was running around in tombs previously. He is clothed at this point, whereas he was naked previously. He is in his right mind, whereas he was completely nuts beforehand. It's this amazing transformation, but, but so is, and keep this in mind, so is uh, the healing, the rebirth, the heart change, the life change of every single man, woman, and child who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a picture of the gospel, of salvation. Truly, it is. In fact, uh, the word healed, right, in verse 36 you see there, is, it's this Greek word sozo, which is also translated saved, as in salvation. In fact, you ever think about what a conversion is? It's, it's everything that we see in this man. That's what conversion is. It's God releasing a captive from sin. It's the Lord redeeming a soul from the devil. It's restoration of a man or a woman to their right sense of mind. And, and finally, finding ourselves sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. A place where he's in the authority. A place where we seek to learn. This demon-possessed man has been healed. He's been saved. And so then amazingly, right, as amazing as this miracle is, the response of both Legion and the townies is really just as important to our understanding of this passage as the miracle itself is. And so let's look at a few of these people's response. First, the herdsmen. They're, they're townies as well, but the herdsmen. They, they, they witness this all happen. And, and they just take off like Paul Revere telling everyone, right? Telling them what, they, what they've seen so far. You, you can imagine the conversation, right? Something like, you've, you've got to come see this. This guy pulled up in a boat, um, and, and, and he drowned all of our pigs somehow. It was like magic. You've got to see it. And you know crazy tomb guy that's always down there scaring us? He's normal, or seems to be normal. He's wearing clothes, which we haven't seen in years. Come see this. And so he's calling all these people out. Come, come look at this. Come, come see what's happening. And you can imagine, right? They didn't have Netflix, so they all show up because there's something going on in town. And, and they show up, and when they see there's Legion... And he's healed, and he's normal, and he's doing well, and he's healthy. And, and they all rejoice, and they're amazed, and they want to know so much more about this miracle worker named Jesus, right? Only that's not how they respond. Not at all, is it? Look at their response there. That last phrase in verse 35, that they were afraid. They're afraid. He healed this man, and they're afraid. What, what are they afraid of? Can't they see this healing that Jesus has brought? And they can't. I mean, they see it, but that's not really what they're looking at. So what are they afraid of? You know, before we, we get into that, and we will, I, I want to make sure you pick up on something here. Do you think about who these locals were? Like, who, who are they? Are they Jews or Gentiles? You know, use, use your deduction here. Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. And, and we know that 
because they're pig farmers, right? Jews couldn't eat pigs, so Jews didn't raise pigs. They were forbidden from doing so, and so we know that. And knowing that these are in fact Gentiles makes this interaction that much more interesting because Christ's primary focus, we know from his own words in Matthew 15.24, is, uh, is to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet here's Jesus and his public earthly ministry showing this care for the Gentiles that he goes out of his way to show up in their land. And to care for them. It's this foreshadowing of the, of the global reach of the gospel that has always been the plan of the Lord, God, Lord our God. And so that, that's part of this. And now I, I want to move us back then to, to our question, right? Why are these Gentiles afraid of Jesus after he's healed this man? And the answer is it's the same reason that people are afraid of Jesus today. Because he'll change your life. He'll change things you might actually like about your life on some level. It's as Bonhoeffer said, there is a, a cost of discipleship. Things change. And in their case, 2,000 pigs are going to be washing ashore over the next couple of days, dead, ruined. That's a lot of bacon. It's a lot of pulled pork. It's a lot of ham. There's a lot of whatever else you turn a pig into uh, to make it tasty. But ultimately, what we're talking about, though, is that's a lot of money. That costs their economy. That costs them individually, specifically, a lot of money. See, Jesus loves this man, but these, these individuals, they love their swine. They love their money. And so they reject Jesus. They, they love the world and the things of the world so much that they're unwilling to give them up. And I know it's quick that we're, we're easy to just judge them on this, but... How, how do you think you'd respond? I mean, honestly, seriously, how, how would you have responded in this moment? You know, Christians, think for just a moment. Try something here. Think of the one person that you long to see come to faith in Jesus Christ more than anyone else. A sister, a son, a parent, a close friend. If, if God would just grant you one person of your choosing, you could pick them, who would that be? Get that person in your mind. Now, understand, this is not how salvation works, but for the sake of a point, I, I want you to suppose that the only way it would happen is, that, uh, is at the cost of you losing your financial security. That's what it would cost. Your savings, um, or your house, your, your business, whatever it might be where you are able to have financial security. Would you lose that for this one person that you care about to be rescued from their sin? Would you? Is, is salvation that dear to you? Could you rejoice in that moment when that happened? Now, I, I bet most of you could, actually. I, I think you could. that you, you care about this individual that much. But, but what if instead of salvation coming to this one person that you care so dearly about, what, what if instead it would come to the homeless guy living in the woods out along the linear trail that just shows up at Walmart sometimes begging for money at the stop sign? What if it was going to come to that guy instead? If that were the case, would you rejoice at his restoration? His salvation, all at the expense of your financial security? I think that's a little tougher, isn't it? That gets more to the point of what they're seeing here. I'll just let you think about that for a while. Um, but then I, I do want you to see that this encounter... 
absolutely challenges our priorities in life in a really uncomfortable way. You know, what, what do you really value? David Platt, in the book he wrote, said, This brings us to the crucial question for every professing or potential follower of Jesus. Do we really believe he is worth abandoning everything for? Are, are, are we more concerned about wealth or the gospel? Are, are we more concerned about even things like uh, getting our work done, our task done? Or, or do we care about giving time to, to people in our, our circle of influence who need to know Christ? Where are our, our value system? Because we look at the story, and you can see plain as day the value of, these, uh, of the townies in our story, right? They don't see the value in Christ. They're afraid of Christ, of what other changes that might come. If this man sticks around, what's going to happen to our life? Right? He's the bull in the china shop. Just get out before you ruin other things. And so they ask him to leave. And he, and he does. And we won't go into much detail, but when he leaves, that's a... That's an act of judgment on these people from the Lord Jesus. And they ask him to leave. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, can you imagine a culture where Jesus makes people so afraid that they want to remove his presence from the culture? It's a bit of a joke. I know you can imagine that. We live in that culture. A culture that wishes to to normalize sins of all sorts. A culture that values wealth and and autonomy over life and over souls. That's the culture the Lord has brought us to to minister and to live in, to to honor His name in. That's where we find ourselves. So then I, I hope you feel the true sadness for these people. Salvation has come to them and they have sent salvation away. It's heartbreaking. And at the same time, our, our passage does, in fact, end on an encouraging note. I want us to go look back to your passage, your Bible, for you. Our, our last two verses, verses here, beginning in verse 38, where he says this. Uh, Luke says, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The man's prediction or response is predictable, right? It's the response of everyone who's ever been rescued, right? We, we see it in every movie, the little aliens in Toy Story, right? We're, we're eternally grateful. We'll go wherever you go now. It's the response of everyone who's ever been rescued. It's the, it's the chorus of that song I keep hearing, right? Oh, oh Lord, you know it's true. I only want to be with you. It's that I, I, I'll go wherever you go. This man's response is, is so different, though, from the others in the story, isn't it? Because he wants to be with Jesus, uh, and he wants to go with Jesus, to leave his hometown, to join the disciples, to get in this boat, to go on the travels and see, who else are we going to set free? What other amazing things are we going to do? I want to go with you. Now, missions today even, right, I, uh, is typically the response of any radical commitment to Jesus. I, I can remember, particularly in the college years, anytime someone was really growing in their love of Christ, uh, we're, I'm going on missions. Everyone was going on missions. I think half of Texas a and is on missions now, except for they're not. Um, we, we tend to think, though, that if you're serious about Jesus, about the gospel, that, that you're just, you're heading somewhere. We're going to China or India or some adventure in a jungle far, far away. And it it may be that God does, in fact, 
call you to missions far away. That is a part of God's, God's working the great commission in the world. But let us also remember there, there's more than one true path of gospel commitment. And here we're seeing another one that Jesus calls them to. Because I, I, I just, I mean, I, I love this man's zealousness here, right? I, I wish we were all this zealous. Think about it. He's known Jesus, what, like two minutes? And he's ready to get on a boat and just leave everything he knows to go with him? He's ready to leave home to faithfully follow Jesus. And, and, and you're, you can almost feel just the disappointment he must have had when Jesus responds to him. You know, no, you, you return to town. Go back to your home. And I, I want you to just declare what God's done for you. That's not the commission he was hoping to get. But I, I love this. I love it because Jesus doesn't send the man out to, to, to big things, right? He's, he's not going on a book tour or a speaking tour or out as a missionary somewhere. He sends him back into this hometown where, where he can be a constant testimony to everybody there, to everyone who knows him about the power of Jesus to set captives free. And we have no idea, because it's not recorded, what the influence of this was later when the disciples show back up, Right? After his death and resurrection. But, but sometimes the call of Jesus in our life is to remain in the town we're from and to declare how much God has done for us. And, and listen carefully to this. That, that is not a lesser calling. It's not. It is not a lesser calling. And so Legion, as we're still calling him, He's sent home to be an evangelist of the most glorious and the most ordinary sort. He's called to be this gospel witness in the same town where, where everyone knows his story. I think that's part of the reason we like to go somewhere else. Everyone knows like all the trash in his history. Oh, you're the crazy man, right? Well, not anymore. You know, everyone knows his past. But everyone can also see the change that God has made in his life. And that is a beautiful testimony to the gospel, to the Lord. You know, we're, we're not left either to wonder, does, does Legion really do it? Or does he kind of go lukewarm after this? It, it, you know, God's word informs us here. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So listen, Christian, your, your witness, your sharing of what God has done in your life is central to the mission of the church, to the completing of the Great Commission, to the proclamation of the gospel. Every single one of us, if you have come to have faith in Christ, you have a story to tell. You might think it's boring, but you have a story to tell. The details are always different, right? But the core of the story is always the same. That God has forgiven my sin. That He has transformed me. He's giving victory over this area of my life or that area of my life. Even, you know, we, we look at this. Even our dark sins, right, are forgiven. The ones we're afraid people might know. Even our very public sins, the embarrassing ones that we wish people didn't know, but we know they do. Now, all these sins are forgiven. And you have a story to tell and should be told. And so church, you know, Manhattan is where God has you for now. Most of you. I know you're not all from here. Let's, let's learn how to tell what God has done in our life. Let me set you free a little bit here in the sense of knowing this. As Tico Rice puts it so well, right? We're, our job is to tell the story, to proclaim the gospel, but that's, that's our job. All right, he says our job is not to convert people. It is to witness to Christ. 
He goes on, he says, conversion isn't the mark of successful witness. Witnessing is to speak of the gospel of Christ. You have a story to tell. And I, I, I do want to warn you, I know that for some of you are thinking, my story's very vague, I don't really know how to tell it. If, if that's the reality of your life, I cannot encourage you more to take some time today to, one, think about it. Think about the details. Be able to answer yourself, what has God done for me? What has he done for me? Think about those details. And then, you know, ask each other. You're going to lunch today. You're riding in a car with someone. Go ahead and ask them, what has God done for you? It might be awkward for a bit. But this is how we help each other learn to tell the story of what God's done for us. What has God from, done for you? And, and then see what you learn. Uh, you'll hear some glorious stories. Finally, uh, if you're here today and you're thinking, um, you know, I, I am enslaved to some sort of sin so bad that you just feel like there's no hope. I, I want you to remember this story that we've just gone over, that, what Christ has done in this man's life, right? Because if, if Jesus can free a man who is plagued by thousands of demons... A man who is beyond human help. If Jesus can set that man free, then he can set you free from anything that enslaves you in your life. Anything. He can restore you and give you a story to tell that glorifies his name. Let's pray. (coughs) Mighty God, (coughs) may we be made aware of all that you have done for us, Would you even make us aware of things you've spared us from? We can appreciate that as a work you've done in us. Would you make us aware of everything you've done to set us free, to to enjoy you? Make us aware so that we could be witnesses to your goodness and your glory and your mighty power to work in the lives of, of others. Wherever we go, may others come to believe the gospel and be saved because we cannot remain silent silent about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.